Hi, I'm Lee Keough, Editor-in-Chief of NJ Spotlight, and I'd like to welcome you to our new conference podcast series. Today's program is from our NJ Spotlight on Cities event, held October 16th, 2015, at the New Jersey Performing Arts Center in Newark. Is Abbott Dead? School Reform and Funding in the Cities is the title of this session, which looks at how schools are funded in our urban districts and how it has or has not translated into quality education. Chris Cerf, Superintendent of Newark Schools and former State Commissioner of Education, Paul Trachtenberg, Co-Director of the Institute on Education Law and Policy, and Drew Martin, Executive Director, Kip Hooper, Norcross Academy, are our panelists and join moderator John Mooney, CEO and founding editor of NJ Spotlight. Thank you all uh, for joining us. Um, some of these folks don't need introduction, but I will introduce them nonetheless. On, on my left, uh, immediate left, is Chris Cerf, currently the superintendent of Newark Public Schools, and, and before that, uh, state education commissioner, where I first met him. And all of these people have lengthy bios in the in the uh, in the uh, program, so you can you can get the details. But um, and next to him is uh, Drew Martin, uh, who is running the. Uh, KIPP Charter School Network uh, as a renaissance school in Camden um, and, and has been part of uh, KIPP. How many years have you been working with KIPP? Uh, over a decade. Yeah, over a decade. So before Camden as well. Um, and who I've had the pleasure of getting to know through there. And then uh, really needs no introduction, but Paul Trachtenberg, uh, founder of the Education Law Center, uh, now a distinguished professor at, at Rutgers Law, but really um, the man who put uh, school equity in a lot of ways on the map in New Jersey and, and really made it um, a pioneer and, and I think a hero to a lot of folks for his work there. Um, I, you know, when I was coming up, we wanted to do uh, a session uh, as, as on this conference about um, education reform in the cities and, and education funding, which is obviously could be a whole day, if not whole weekend, if not whole year. Uh, it has represented 20 years of my education coverage in New Jersey. I'd say I've been writing about Abbott versus Burke since the beginning of it. Um, but I wanted to, you know, at least touch on it with three really smart guys who know this stuff better than, than all of us, um, their experiences and perspectives. And I was trying to think of a title, and I said, is Abbott dead? Um, and I was like, wow, that's provocative. I don't know if we're ever going to answer that one. But but a couple of my colleagues said, oh, that's a good title. And I said, all right, well, let's stick with it. Um, and I hope we get a little bit further than, than just talking about Abbott versus Burke, certainly, and its legacy. But I, I do want to start with that question. Um, and for those who don't know it well, Abbott versus Burke is the school equity case in New Jersey that has really um, led to both a lot of money and resources coming into the schools and, and a lot of attention on urban education and really rewriting the formula for, uh, for how education is funded, even if that formula isn't necessarily funded um, by any stretch. And, um, but it's also it's, uh, delved into the role of the courts in, in trying to solve some of these issues. I mean, a, a quite an activist court. But let me, uh, let me start with the guy who started all this, uh, Paul Trachtenberg. And I know it's not going to be a short answer from you, but try to you know, give it to me in a minute or so. You know, is Abbott dead? Uh, we are in a post-Abbott, at least legally, era. Um, but but speak to that a little bit from your perspective. Um, actually, I don't have to speak at great length because the answer is no, Abbott is not dead. Uh, and there are really two reasons for that. One, 
the state's persistent failure to fully fund the new formula of the 2008 uh, School Funding Reform Act uh, led us back to the court in 2011 and led to a court decision that Abbott is still alive as a constitutional category and that Abbott students really alone in, among students in the, in the state are entitled to full funding as under Abbott. So, so the state's default in terms of failure to fully fund its own statute has really led to the direct constitutional resuscitation uh, of, of Abbott. Secondly, really the premises of Abbott uh, are subsumed in the new school funding law. Let me give one example. Our early childhood education, uh, which under Abbott I think most people would agree is a signal success. And so the, the 2008 statute says, well, we shouldn't bound early childhood education for at-risk students by zip code, the terminology used. We should extend it statewide. Uh, as far as I know, the state has yet to appropriate a single dollar to make that a reality. So all the state funding for early childhood education continues to go to the Abbott districts and nowhere else. So um, I, I think both because of the positive force uh, of Abbott and its remedial structure, and because of the state's failure to fund a replacement statute, uh, we very much have Abbott still alive and breathing. Let me skip, I'll skip over you, I'm going to come back to you, Drew, but uh, Superintendent well, Surf, speak to your perspective on this. Well, I'm going to agree uh, with Paul in the, in the most fundamental sense, but I'm going to state it in slightly more affirmative tones. Um, that is, the central premise, uh, premises of Abbott are very much alive, and they are two. One is that... Um, uh, almost from an equal protection perspective, and I used to practice constitutional law, that it is fundamentally unfair to have the amount of money that we spend on education depend on the value of the tax base and the particular community in which a child is born. There was a raft of what are called equalization uh, litigation, uh, litigation across the country that was basically premised on the view, if I happen to be born in a neighborhood that is unable to raise very much in the way of taxes. Um, and since historically, local tax bases funded education, um, as opposed to from the state or from a sort of more general treasury sense. So Abbott represented a rather uh, brilliant and effective articulation of the view. That's fundamentally unfair. We have to build a formula that sends money uh, Two districts uh, uh, in an equalized way that takes into account that some districts are just less able economically to raise funds. That principle is very much alive. The second principle that's very much alive is that moving beyond the sort of equal protection, equalization orientation is a substantive orientation that it takes more to educate a child who is born in poverty than a child who is not born uh, uh, in poverty. That the actual identification of um, uh, particular needs, supports, whether it's early childhood or whether, uh, so the value, so which is why the so-called, uh, the, the, you know, the artists formerly known as the Abbott districts, but the, the, the 31 districts um, um, on a per pupil basis uh, have much higher per pupil spending, uh, per pupil uh, revenue sent to them. Than uh, the, the most than the average of the cross, across the state, and so on, because their needs uh, are higher. So I think both of those premises, which are fundamental, and by the way, 
uh, I would say that um, the ELC um, issued a report giving the rating all 50 states on those two premises, and New Jersey was the only state that got an A, both in absolute funding and in, in funding that was dependent on um, it looked at the wealth of the state and did a regression analysis based on that and said as a percentage of your state GDP, because obviously, you know, Mississippi or Arizona have a different set of wealth. So New Jersey was the only state that got a double A and was in the top one, two, or three in almost all of the categories. So I would say that is evidence that Abbott is working. Now, it is also true, as Paul says, that going back to the Corzine administration, the uh, the, the full funding uh, uh, under the SFRA um, it has always been aspirational. And I will say under the Christie administration, uh, you know, I happen to be a Democrat, but I work in the cabinet of a, of a Republican uh, governor, that the, fisc the generalized fiscal pressures, um, you know, we can pretend they don't exist, but they, you know, when you decide to send money to schools in a zero-sum environment, um, uh, you are, you know, making a decision to allocate between schools, hospitals, roads, and all the other things that call uh, call on it. And it is absolutely true that without the pressure of the court, um, um, uh, of, the, of, the, of the litigation, and even with the pressure of the litigation, money is not being fully funded to uh, to, to the state. So in that respect, I'm certainly not going to argue that Abbott was dead, and your editors or your, your no, that's headline me. makers. I'm, yeah, uh, right. uh, but it is, uh, the fiscal circumstances have put it under real pressure. But let me push back a little yeah, bit on yeah. you, and you and I yeah. have talked quite a bit, and you've said this publicly, is you've at times decried the amount of money that has gone to some of these districts and 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 the value or not that is you know that has been served by it um, and have talked and the court at one point at, at several points has has tried to mandate even instructional models right. whole school reform um, and and success for all and the like and then certainly preschool um, you know does it go both ways where yes money does make a difference and they need more but you know, we're not necessarily seeing the, the fruits of that. So here, uh, let, let me, let me uh, build a bridge between those, the, those perspectives. Uh, first of all, anyone who argues that money doesn't matter in education, you know, needs to be institutionalized, right? No, no, but nobody would argue that money is... Some of those are elected people, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> uh, 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 so there's no, there's no doubt that money, that money matters. I think what happened in this state is that money... Uh, because of the uh, essential nature of the of the circumstances that led to the litigation and the litigation itself became a code for quality right that money we're all deeply troubled in a moral sense in a social justice sense by the inequities of our education and we need to equalize that with money and i will tell you that what i have said i've certainly never said the money doesn't matter no i know uh, what i have said is that we need to focus not only on how much but how well we spend the uh, we spend the money and when we become overly focused on the how much question then uh, we may be under-focused on the how well question. Hey, Drew, um, one of the reasons I invited you here is I really wanted to... One of the things that Abbott didn't address, and, and Paul can speak to this after Drew, uh, is it really didn't get into the issue of charter schools and, uh, and certainly uh, Renaissance schools as well as, as I call them charter schools and I get scolded for that. They are sort of a hybrid, but they are often um, can be confused easily with charter schools. Um, but, 
they are clearly having a huge impact on our on several of our cities. Newark among them, uh, Camden certainly. The Renaissance schools are are, are growing. Um, you know, are going to be a, a significant, if not half of the district, uh, close to half. But you come from a, a team uh, team academy, a team. Uh, but of Kip, that is just a, I think recently applied to add five more schools in Newark. Uh, and Uncommon Schools, another network here, uh, has already won approval, won approval a few, few years ago to add four more schools, and they've added one, and, and there's going to three more to come, including, I heard, on the former Star-Ledger property, which is a little sad for me as a former Re- Ledger reporter. But speak to, the, you know, speak to Abbott from the perspective of, of charter schools, and is it a, is it a, a tool for you guys to, to grow? Is it an impediment? Um, I know funding is an issue, but you know, speak from the charter school perspective. Well, first of all, I have to say that um, I'm disappointed in the reason that you invited me here. I thought it was no, and your charm too. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll accept your reason. Uh, so, you know, when I started out just as a teacher uh, here in the city of Newark, as a fifth grade math teacher at Team Academy, uh, we were being funded at basically 35, 40 cents in the dollar. Um, and so, when the school funding reform act was was passed um, under the sort of lame duck Corazon administration at the very end there, we saw a 35 or 40% increase in funding overnight. Uh, and that meant for us uh, on the ground level that we could afford to uh, differentiate more. We could hire more uh, special education teachers and serve our kids better. So uh, the School Funding Reform Act for us in Newark had a significant impact. In Camden, as, as you may or may not know, the funding is a little bit different. So we're not funded the way that a typical charter is. So, so in Camden, we operate much more like a traditional public school. Uh, and so we get 95% of the all-in funding. For charters in the state of New Jersey, uh, they do not get uh, 90% of the all-in funding. They get 90% funding, but they don't actually get the hold harmless uh, uh, money that was sort of the compromise between um, when Abbott was, I guess, starting to be phased out and the School Funding Reform Act came in. Uh, And so we're still getting probably less than 90 cents on the dollar in in Newark. Um, And so we certainly would not make the argument that money doesn't matter because we'd be happy to take more of it because it would make an impact for us. But speak, I mean, you know, you don't get Abbott money. Uh, you do get other money. Uh, well, there's some. Well, so in, in Camden know. we do because we get 95 percent of, of of. But in uh, in, in Newark, um, you know, and and I know there's some folks here from Jersey City which gets even less money, uh, Abbott money. I mean, you you know, and I think you do pretty well. But there's also some debates about you know um, some of that. But you're you're doing. You're doing well with less funding. You're not getting Abbott money, so you're not really falling under Abbott's equity case. Um, you know, is there an argument that the charters are showing that that Abbott isn't necessarily the the end all to this, and that there's some different models to be considered? Well, I don't think that charters ever set out to make a statement about Abbott. Right? We we set out to uh, make a statement that there's lots of different ways to educate kids, and there's uh, lots of different choices that parents in all sorts of communities need to be able to make for their children. So we set out to provide a high-quality education for our kids, and we are making a very strong argument that we're doing that by serving the same population of kids as you see in the traditional district. Now, and clarify, because this comes up, with, with a place like Team or KIPP, significant amount of funds come from outside public funding in terms of foundation funding, private funding, I mean, you have some resources yeah. that, that others may not have. So, Can you so clarify that? When our schools get to full size, we're break-even on, on public funds. Um, so the way that KIPP schools grow is they start small and they grow uh, increasingly. Uh, so they add one grade level per year. Uh, so until our schools uh, get to about 75% of capacity, we have to fundraise until they can um, be uh, fully operational to get them off the ground. Uh, but 
our schools are break even uh, once they reach 75% of their, their capacity. You just mentioned the real estate, maybe. That, that, oh. yeah. <laughs> sure, how could you forget that? So uh, we also have to pay for our, for our facilities. So in the state of New Jersey, there's not facility funding for charters. Uh, and so we have to uh, buy and renovate buildings. Except in the Renaissance model in Camden, there is some funding being... There's not, there's not money uh, for Renaissance schools that are specifically alloc- allocated towards funding. Uh, we get a higher percentage towards facilities, of funds towards yeah. facilities. Uh, there, we get a higher percentage uh, of funds than a traditional charter would in the city of Camden. So we get 95% of the all-in. Charters get about 90 per, 90% of most of the funding streams, but not all. They probably operate on about 80 to 85 cents on the dollar in, in Camden. A charter does. Uh, we get 95%. And so the argument could be made that because we're getting more funding, then we're more able to afford facilities, but the truth of the matter is is that we're still getting 95% of what the traditional district is doing, and the traditional district does not have to pay for their buildings. Speak to, Paul, speak to Charter's role in, you know, in this, because you probably didn't envision them when you started all this with Marilyn Morehouser back when. Uh, They didn't exist when this issue came up, and it's obviously changed the face of of a lot of cities' uh, school systems. Let Let me start with a couple of preambles. Number one, uh, the Education Law Center in a charter school case in Englewood years ago argued that if students came from Abbott districts, Abbott funding should follow them to charter schools. Uh, that's a position I think little recognized. Um, secondly, I, I think the, the origin of charter schools, and actually Albert Shanker was one of the early yep. Proponents w- was different than the current face of charter schools. The notion was we would have some experimental schools that would be freed from some regulation that would otherwise attach, and the quid pro quo the charter schools would pay is to share what they learned with the traditional public schools. I think the game's much different when you have charter school management organizations, a proliferation of charter schools, a movement toward all charter school districts. I think Andy Smarrick, who for a time was with you in the Department of Ed, published an article about why Newark was an outstanding case for an all-charter district, a la New Orleans. Uh, I, I think that raises a serious question about the democratic underpinnings of public education. Because charter schools are sort of educational fiefdoms. They're not responsible to the district. They're responsible to their own boards. Their boards typically don't have community people, typically don't have educators. They're dominated by hedge fund people. Uh, So I'm not into the conspiracy theory, but I am saying we have to look very closely at the notion of Camden possibly, Newark possibly becoming all charter districts. Each charter school is its own school district under New Jersey law. So instead of having one district accountable for its schools, you'll have a proliferation of maybe 50 districts in a particular city, each beholden to its own board and not beholden to the local community, to an elected or even appointed Board of Education. Uh, I I just would suggest if you want to see the future of all charter districts, read any annual report by the Cowan Institute of Tulane University, set up exclusively to look at the New Orleans schools and report on it, and they've raised some warning signs about uh, kids, particularly special ed and needy kids, falling into the cracks because there's no central district that can ensure everybody gets a good education. There's an assortment of a bunch of individual 
charter schools, each a district unto itself, and if they take everybody and serve everybody, that's great. If they don't, then who's there to protect these kids? So I, I, I think that's a different situation by a lot from the early notion that we would have a modest number of individual schools that are experimental and that Do would... Do you see that happening here? I mean, it's, you know, we haven't hit a tipping point. Is there a tipping point in your view, uh, you know, in terms... Because it's certainly less than half. I don't know. It's maybe a third now in a couple of these cities. I mean, well, is but, there a t- but, I, but I think the plan... I mean, or, read Andy Smarrick's article. It's a blueprint for how you find ways to reduce the enrollment in traditional public schools. You close them and you replace them by charter schools. He spells out a very clear blueprint from ha- for how you make Newark an all-charter district. Are we there? No. Will we ever be, be there? Not clear. But is the blueprint out there, and, and is it a blueprint that I find threatening? Yes. But the, the blueprint is choice. That, 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 that's what the okay. blueprint is, right? And so, so it's certainly true that when charter schools were first envisioned that people didn't uh, necessarily in the state of New Jersey or anywhere else think that we might get to a district that was going to be 100% charter. Uh, but it is true that parents have seen the options that are now available to them and are voting with their feet. And so if, if Newark ever becomes 100% charter or 90% charter, it'll be because of the choices that parents make because they want a different option for their kids. And that's what they've been doing here in the city for the last decade, and it's hard to argue with giving parents choice. So, yeah, I, I can uh, actually shed some uh, reality. Uh, but by the way, First Andy, of all, you didn't hire Andy, but you, were, you kept yeah, him on. By the way, the, the lionization of Andy is something that I think that he would be enormously gratified by, but uh, <laughs> he is a private consultant. He comes from a sort of Republican heritage, and he has a worldview. What he actually wrote uh, is, uh, if, if I, let's talk about Andy for a minute. What he actually wrote was... Um, he has grave doubts that a city uh, school system encrusted with all of the sort of uh, uh, accretions of uh, contracts and habits and inertia and so on uh, is capable of reforming itself and that the, the better course is to do something in the nature of what Katrina did in New Orleans, which is create a, a blank slate. He also said, by the way, that New, that New Jersey has going on a, a, a two different competing hypotheses, one in Newark, which is not a uh, New Orleans-style go charter, and one in Camden, which might trend in that direction. So that's actually not what he wrote. But let me tell you what the reality is, because I actually um, have some um, contact with the underlying facts. And that is, right now, uh, 27.5% of the students in Newark, um, who live in Newark, go to charter schools. Is that the number? Yeah. It's about it's about 27.5%. Uh, uh, um, when uh, I learned uh, that um, the uh, charter that the um, uh, Zuckerberg was about to um, make a very substantial gift to Newark, and it was going to be matched and could total as much as two hundred million dollars. Was by the way, I wasn't part of that. I, I came on board, but I knew that there were a number of people who were like, really thinking hard that this would be an opportunity to really invest deeply in charter schools. I was not one of those, meaning I have always taken the position for... But a huge sum went to charter, of that 200 million. About a quarter. Okay. Well, well, no, by the way, you would not know that from Dale's book, about a quarter. Well, all right. Well, then I'm going to... That's a later session. uh, It's a later (laughs) session. But no, but there are so many myths that are out there. So I flew down to Washington and I met privately with Randy Weingarten in her office. And I said, look, we've got a bunch of folks who want to invest in charters. I 
absolutely believe the only thing we should focus on is whether a school is public and whether a school is quality. So I am an advocate of quality uh, um, educational options driven by parent choice. But I am not an advocate of charterizing the district. I don't think that makes sense for political reasons, for fiscal reasons, for a bunch of different reasons. So we crafted a deal that later became the later contract in which we um, agreed that there would be a you know, modest controlled growth of charters. And in exchange for putting most of the Zuckerberg money into the pockets of teachers and into the creation of a lot of ch uh, changes that would do it. So regardless of what the sort of narrative is out there from the unions and from various sources, that was never the plan. It is not the plan. And I will tell you right now, as former commissioner and as current superintendent, it would sh really, really, really shock me if more than half of the schools in this district and you've, and were charters. Were what has schools, been interesting, that's not my plan. and you've spoken out uh, yeah. lately, um, and, mm -hmm. and I wonder if it was a change of a heart, but uh, in terms of the amount of money that now Newark has to pay to charter schools, and you've, that's raised a concern for you, and, um, and you've, you, you've started talking about are there some remedies that aren't, right. isn't putting the burden quite so much right. on, on the district. I wanted to take some questions from mm -hmm. folks. I know, but John is handling this for us, and I don't know if you have any already or... So while we're waiting for yeah, this question, there, there is just one thing that I do want to clarify, um, certainly to, to sort of counter one of the things that Paul said, which is that first, charter schools are public schools. Mm -hmm. right? We're not private schools. Charter schools are public schools. Uh, and second, the argument that uh, the original intent uh, for charters in the state of New Jersey was not that they would uh, proliferate to, to, the, uh, to the extent that they have is, to me, sort of a silly argument, right? I mean, the, the, you know, when Alexander Graham Bell originally thought of the telephone, like, he might not have actually had the original intent of being the iPhone, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, nobody's going to say, like, well, that wasn't the original intent, so we have to put the iPhone away. But the reality of the matter is that regardless of whether or not it was the original intent, parents have seen this as a viable option for their kids and are voting with their feet. Paul, do you want to... Yeah, well, I, I, I want to take on this parents voting on their feet as if they have unbidden come to a decision that charters are good. There's a massive PR and media campaign. How many feature films have advertised to parents that the salvation of their children depends on their getting into a charter school? So uh, parent choice, yes, but parent choice, I think, strongly guided by uh, a policy and ideological predilection. Secondly, I, I, I do want to broaden the conversation a little, if I can. Sure. Because the conversation about is Abbott dead or not, are there alternative means of reforming education, it seems to me proceeds without focusing on the fact that we have a hugely dysfunctional structure of education in New Jersey. We have more than 600 school districts, and now each charter school is a district, so we have more than 700 uh, school districts. Uh, Virtually half of the school districts are too small to run a K-12 program, so they have to send their kids someplace else to high school with all the attendant problems. Uh, John, you know I spent a year sabbatical looking at countries that have successful education reforms, uh, and I think the most instructive, I was in Helsinki, but lots of people say, oh, Finland's yeah. different. <laughs> but I was in Toronto and Ontario. You know, Ontario has 50% more students than New Jersey. Ontario has 72 school districts. 
The average pupil enrollment per district in Ontario is 30,000. In New Jersey, it's barely above 2,000. Ontario spends 60% as much per student as New Jersey. They actually spend less money on 2 million students than we do on 1.3 million students. So they're doing something right. They don't use standardized tests. Uh, All their teachers are unionized. They have strong tenure protections. Union leadership is at all the major policy tables with ministers of education uh, and others. Teaching is the highest status profession, and how did it get there? They require a two-year master's degree in education for an entry-level teacher. There's a wholly different mindset. They say we have the best professionals in the classroom, and they will impose accountability on students. But how do we change? I mean, that's a culture. I mean, and this is right. my, always my issue with, with Finland and Japan and, and Singapore and the like, is that, you know, they, these are cultures that were built over decades, if not centuries. You know, we don't clearly, you know, what? revere teachers like they do, and I'm not sure that's going to change if we all of a sudden decide to make them, you know, well, the masters. Since this is, a, the day is about cities, let me broaden it. You know, if we confront, you know, will we change? I don't know. Uh, If we confront this notion of U.S. exceptionalism, you know, which makes us alone among all the developed countries in the world about running education the way we do, about running health care the way we do, you could go down the list privatizing prisons, disenfranchising felons as part of a strategy to suppress black votes, you know, we have a lot of really fundamental issues to attend to. And to think we can put a, a Band-Aid on education, on the existing dysfunctional system, whether the Band-Aid is charter schools or the Band-Aid, frankly, is Abbott, right. yeah. I think we're fooling ourselves. So, so structural change has to be on the agenda. If we're not prepared to tackle it, we're not prepared to tackle the problems. John Reitmeyer, uh, I saw you've been taking questions and... and also, uh, he's also, for those who are so inclined, we do have a hashtag. As much as I said it's great that we're all in the same room, we also, of course, have hashtags. What's we that? have an app. You know, we're everything. But the hashtag is NJS on cities. But, John, what yeah, I've, I've asked Twitter things? for questions as well. Yep. Um, I'll, I'll start out with this one. Uh, why does the CMO change anything about the ability of a school to deliver quality education to kids, except maybe for the better? Um, and then a follow to that question would be who's on the two uh, Rutgers boards? Okay. Raises the point. And th- you raised this question, why are CMOs a bad thing? I mean, if, if they're running good schools and, 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 and families are choosing to be there, um, and, and he, the follow-up question is, you know, a lot of schools have, have board members who aren't necessarily of their quote-unquote community, and, right. and, you know, oftentimes they're fundraisers, to be honest with you. Um, speak to that, Paul. Well, I, I think it relates to what I was saying before. It, it has to do with the scale uh, of charter schools versus traditional public schools. And, and I, you know, I think that there's, a, there's really been a sustained effort to characterize, quote, reformers as those who favor uh, an agenda that diminishes the role of traditional public schools. And anybody who doesn't share that vision is seen as a defender of the status quo. Right. Uh, I mean, if there's anybody who's attacked the status quo, it's me. Uh, and yet I don't buy into all the elements of uh, the current reform ideology in New Jersey and in the U.S. I, uh, 
And I, I've studied it, and I've seen where it works differently, and it's in virtually every country in the world, every developed country other than ours. The reform ideolo- or ideology? No, the, 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 the reform that our bedrock is traditional public schools. Uh, among the other things that uh, Ontario has done recently is they've gone to full provincial funding because they said, you know, we're buying huge problems if we try to combine provincial or state funding with local funding. It introduces these horrible inequities. Uh, And so let's just do away with it and go to what would here be full state funding. So they've made, in the last 12 years, fundamental changes in the way they deliver and structure education. So to say it's impossible, it will take generations. Can I just follow on that? Is it specific to Toronto or is Canada or... Or, you know, the larger provinces done this throughout? Um, or is this Toronto making this no, transition so, themselves? So, or is well, Montreal it's Ontario. Also Quebec, or? It, uh, some have and some okay. haven't. There, there are uh, uh, other provinces in Canada that are considered education leaders for other reasons. Um, but, but I think there's, there's a collective mindset that's just different there. And hmm. I, I agree. You, you need to change the fundamental mindset to change the details and effectiveness of education. You want to follow on that? Well, just uh, just uh, a couple of points. One is, I, I think there's tremendous truth to Paul's central premise, which is that we keep trying to f- work the miracle of school reform within the parentheses of a governance system and a way of thinking about things, and we never actually look at the parentheses themselves, right? And that they may indeed be an impediment to change. For example, it is, I will tell you, ludicrous to have 2,500 schools uh, in the state. By the way, 87 of them are charters. When we talk about charterization, 87 out of 2,700 are... are, are, uh, uh, No, no, 80. Well, but, I mean, I do... No, No, there there are 80... How many KIPP schools are there? Uh, Currently 10. Okay. So no, I'm saying of the 2,500 schools, some number less than 100 are charter schools. That is a fact. That is not an opinion. That is a fact. Okay, uh, the, um, the, um, uh, but the idea that we have 600 school boards, 600 districts, six, some, some of which literally don't manage any schools, only manage outsourcing kids to neighborhood and districts, some of which don't have any high school, is, you know, if you think about you know, spreading the fixed costs of a district, it just doesn't make any sense. If you think about the ability of local well, politics to dominate the best interests of children, it doesn't make any sense. Now, by the way, you go across the Hudson River, right, and you have a school system that is, I think, better than it was, but struggling, that um, is massive. It's a $26 billion budget. You go to Florida, where every county is its own school district, very much along the lines of, of Toronto, and, you know, Miami's no, uh, you know, no bargain either. So it's not like there's a fix, but I think from an economic and I think generally from a pedagogical point of view, you would do better to have fewer districts. I think that's absolutely right. Paul has written eloquently on the concentrating children in poverty in uh, a limited number of districts and and within districts, a limited number of schools, the research tells you that is going to cause educational failure at higher levels. Yet the idea of breaking down districts or of intra-district choice um, uh, they may be noble ideas I would happily support them and make a speech defending them 
I will tell you, uh, by the way, the idea of a funding formula based on the, everything coming out of the state treasury rather than this Byzantine interaction between local funding, and uh, I think that's a fabulous idea. I will tell you, having been in state politics, the probability of that happening in this or the next five lifetimes is very, very low. That doesn't mean they're not the right idea, but that's not the world uh, that we have. The idea that you're going to say, okay, you know, Montclair, Sales okay, Mil Milburn, you know, we want you to take your fair share of the kids from particular wards in Newark. Um, I love the idea. I don't think that's politically uh, likely to happen. Okay, yeah. a lot of... Good questions. Very, definitely not a bashful group here. I'm going to yep, keep them coming. Get them as much as I can. This one's on a topic uh, right here in Newark. The school system uh, accepted money from Mark Zuckerberg. There's been a lot said and written about it. Um, do you uh, agree with the general consensus that it, it, it didn't reach its intended impact? Um, and what's the panel's thoughts on, on that notion? No, I'm going to hold you back for a second. I know where you're going. <laughs> okay. But I do want to hear from the others on this. Yes. Because um, you've been outspoken on this. But, Paul, what do you I mean? First of all, one of the things that, that often gets lost is sadly, 100 million ain't what it used to be uh, when it comes to education uh, funding. I mean, this is, you know, 100 million over five years is 20 million a year on a budget that over five years is 5 billion a year. So um, I've always, you know, raised that question. But, Paul, I mean, did it spur some changes? Did it, did it help spur a contract that? that at least some feel has you know, brought some greater accountability? I mean, Well, it, it, it funded a couple of years of a contract, the long-term effect of which is, I think, totally unclear. Where's the money going to come from? Uh, with, with the matching money and the number I saw was $154 million in total, $30 million a year, that didn't even cover If that had all gone to the Newark School District budget, didn't even cover the shortfall in state funding to Newark for those years. So uh, it's a lot of money from one perspective. It's chump change. But it brought some another. attention to Newark. I mean, it I did. don't, you know. But, I mean, but look at the board that governed where the money went to. Five people, four of them hedge fund people. I don't think anybody <laughs> lived in Newark or even New Jersey. Uh, now, did that mean they automatically made bad decisions? No. But were they in touch with the local community and responsive <laughs> to it? I don't think so. Yeah, there, there are two things that have changed since the, the money has uh, come in from, from Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg uh, that, that are undeniably true. One uh, is that there are more uh, students in the city of Newark in high-quality uh, public schools, be that charter or traditional, uh, that are uh, more, so they're more likely to go to college if they're in these uh, high-performing schools. Uh, and the district is not doing any worse now than it was beforehand. Um, and so... Uh, well. So, so you, you 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 can't argue you can't argue by looking at the numbers that that the kids that, that the kids have declined ed educationally. In fact, if you look at the numbers, you're going to see that the kids are doing better now on our standardized tests in the city of Newark across the board than they were before the money came in. So I have uh, a, a little bit of trouble answering this question briefly, but I, I yes, will try. I'm sure you do. Uh, so I think the notion uh, that the district is not materially better in multiple ways now than it was four years ago is factually indefensible and indeed borderline preposterous. Um, the um, and let me just me let me m mention a couple things. John is Quickly. right. Uh, John is right to point out that this is a drop in the bucket compared to five billion dollars in public money. 
But a couple things that are, I think are, 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 are worth saying. Uh, radically different educator evaluation system um, uh, in the decade before. Uh, uh, but although that was, excuse me, in that the was state law. That, no, that no, it, state law. no, actually it did not. It came from a combination of a state law, a collective bargaining agreement that was funded by the, by the Zuckerberg uh, money, and the investment of other Zuckerberg money to help use outside sources to build an educator evaluation system that was fair, had inter-rated reliability, and worked. The 115 tenure cases have been filed. And by the way, each teacher touches 100 to 150 lives a year, right? Students a year. 89 of the teachers against whom tenure cases were filed left the, left the district. In the decade before that, almost no one left. Uh, there were almost no tenure cases. Secondly, 95% of the teachers who were evaluated as effective or, uh, or highly effective returned to the district. Um, 62% of the teachers who were ineffective decided to... Uh, How are you going to fund those how are you going to fund those, you know, because they have performance bonuses. Overwhelmingly. How are you going to keep funding it when? With public money, okay. as it was funded now. And okay. so, again, another really mistake. Some of it was Zuckerberg money. No, what happened was the overwhelming amount of the Zuckerberg money went to pay retroactive yes. pay for the years it was out of contact. That's not a non-recurring expense. No. Yeah. The public fisc can absolutely handle the base salaries. Remember, it used to be you got a raise based on the passage of time. The new contract says you get a raise based on the passage of time and being rated effective uh, or, or, or highly effective. So that is the same amount. Okay. That, and the actual merit bonuses were, are trivial. Okay, uh, so on, that, that, you no. can sustain that. So that is also. I want to yeah. be able to take some yeah. more questions. Yeah, this yeah. one is on a topic. And even if there's some themes, you yeah. know. Yeah. A lot of similar questions, but this one's on topic we haven't gotten to too much. It goes to um, the ramifications of testing on Abbott districts. And the question is, some would argue that standardized tests support under-resourced school districts by highlighting test score disparities. Others believe there is an overemphasis on testing and that this particularly hurts students in less affluent districts. What do each of you think on this topic? Yeah, take that, Paul. Um, yes, uh, picking up on something Chris mentioned, which is the, uh, the extent to which we have segregated students by the way we uh, uh, district the state and the way in which yeah, the demographic... Yeah, we haven't even talked about issues of segregation. Um, but but it, 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 it connects up, because what do we do? We have districts, the, the Abbott districts, 77% of all the kids are, are at-risk kids in the Abbott districts. They're mostly students of color. They're mostly poor. How do we determine whether their schools are succeeding? Or I love the term failing schools. Uh, um, failing but, factories. Right. Even. But uh, failure factories, right? That, that's, that's an uplifting way to inspire people, yeah. right? So in any event, what, what do we do? We use standardized tests. If we know one thing about standardized tests, it's that the primary driver of standardized test results is socioeconomic status. So what a surprise. We cluster poor kids. We determine whether their district and their school and they and their teachers are successful based on standardized tests when we know... But how do we... Then, then how do we have the accountability piece to it? I mean, how do we gauge whether these schools are, are serving kids without some kind of measure? I'm not saying it's the ideal one, but... Well, I can tell you in other countries, they use professional teachers as the best benchmark. Uh, they believe that teachers, high-quality teachers 
can evaluate their student performance better than a, a testing company. And by the way, you know, how many times have we changed tests without any ability to equate the results? So what we know is under test A for two years, this was the result. Under test B, this was the result. Is there a relationship? Can we draw a trend line saying things are going, getting better or worse? No, we can't. I will concur. I've covered education in the state for 20 years, and I think we're now on our sixth different uh, set of tests. So let me. Which, let, I, which I, does make it difficult. So I, no, I, I have to just. I, I, quickly. I, 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 I just have to, I have to say that we've had a spirited national debate about the role of tests, and I think it's actually generated a better world than we had before either of the extreme views uh, uh, dominated. But let me tell you something. There's a linear predictable research-based relationship between whether a child can read as measured on a third grade proficiency test and whether that child graduates from high school and goes on to college. It's an inescapable. And I will tell you, for all of these sort of uh, narratives about testing companies and so on, and all of the flaws of tests and all of the tendency to overuse those tests, they are a, uh, a terrific predictor of the life outcomes of children. And if you can't read in the third grade in a way that's measured by test, you are in real trouble. And if you still can't read in the eighth grade as measured by test, you are really uh, uh, in trouble. So it's easy to say that tests are overdone or that other countries don't use them. But here, what we know is that they are one, not the only, one indicator that predicts life outcomes of children. And again, what about then just having a test in third grade? Yeah. And if you, if you pass that, then you're going to be set. If you don't, then you get some remediation rather than the annual testing that is now, uh, you know, and, and taking a, a fair chunk of time. I mean, admittedly, yeah. sitting down to take the test is a 40-minute exercise, right. but schools, they divvy up entire days, if not weeks, to do this. And it, well, it's not, it's not weeks if you're talking about the park test, but it is, it is um, you know, more time than I think a lot of educators would say. Um, is appropriate. My, my own view is we're in such a, the early innings of this that the purpose of the test is to provide real-time information to allow educators to adjust pedagogy and differentiate uh, instruction and to enable more targeted professional development. And that really necessitates a regular flow of, of, of information. I don't think as a descriptor, is a school failing or not, or is a child failing or not, I'm not sure you need to do that every year, but to give teachers the the data and the tools to be even better at their craft, that does take regular evaluation. Take, yeah, we don't have a whole lot of time. So trying, we have a little bit. Trying to move to, to some yeah. topics we haven't hit. So there have been a couple questions about regionalization and or if we don't regionalize maybe county-eyes uh, schools and what impact that would have on both the choice issue and also on the, on the Abbott districts. You've done a lot on this, Paul. Yeah, well, uh, John knows well, and some of the others here may know. Uh, I have a big project going on in which I'm studying the Morris School District, uh, and one of the remarkable things is how few people know what the Morris District is. Uh, it, it is the only district in New Jersey, and I think in the United States, that was uh, a merger of two uh, adjacent districts, Morristown and Morris Township, uh, 45 years ago for racial balance reasons, ordered by the then Commissioner of Education. We're studying it. It's a remarkable success story. It shows how two relatively disparate communities can meld and create a district that continues to be majority white, uh, that's dealing with every educational challenge. So it can be done. Are we willing to do it elsewhere? I don't know. Uh, as 
Chris mentioned earlier, there, there are a lot of southern tier states, including Maryland, which I think now has the highest student achievement record in the country, that run on a county district basis. So it's not some crazy far out uh, and idea. You've written about this as a desegregation. Right. You know, county systems as, you right. know, the larger, because we haven't it, talked about it. I mean, Abbott was not a, you, you consciously made a decision not to make that a segregation case right. or a desegregation case. Right. And, and we still are, have these. Yeah, and and in a, a fairly two-year-old report, I proposed not because I thought Joe DiVincenzo was going to uh, jump up and down and clap his hands in support, that we consider making Essex County a pilot uh, countywide school district because it's compact, it's mm-hmm. populous, it has the worst segregation of any county in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. You, you've got districts side by side that are all minority and low income and all white and high income. Uh, you know, is there, you know, it's, it, I grew up in Newark and, and I'm very familiar with the Ironbound, right? Mm-hmm. We've created a kind of policy Ironbound. That is, we have political third rails everywhere hedging us in so we can't do what I think uh, there's a lot of support and evidence to suggest might work better than what we're trying to do. But we say, well, we can't regionalize. There's a political third rail. We can't go to full state funding. There's a political third rail. On and on. And, and I mean, I guess I'm here to say we got to think outside that box or outside those rails. Uh, otherwise, we're, we're going to have this conversation next year and five years from now and ten years from now. We'll lament that we're not doing better, but, you know, we're well, not we, willing to do we do to hope deal. to make this an annual event so we can call you back next <laughs> okay, year. Okay, okay. And we'll have the same panel. I'm going to give Drew, because uh, we have to cut it off, and as I said, you know, these are small bites on these issues, and we're not, we're not solving it today. I'm, I'm hoping that we at least get some discussions going. Sorry, Paul. Um, but you can come back next year. But, Drew, do you know, speak to that and... And, and give me your sense of, of what's the future. You're, you know, certainly folks feel that charter schools may be more of the future, um, you know, predominantly in, in urban districts. But your, your sense of this discussion and, and where we're headed. Yeah, I mean, you know, to the question of, you know, whether or not Abbott is dead, while well, I understand that yep. that was a provocative title that gets a few people in the room, um, the, you know, the, the real question that, that we certainly ask ourselves as educators on a day-to-day basis is what's good for the kids that are in front of us and what's good for the kids in this city? Uh, and so as somebody who works tirelessly every day in the city of Camden and also, you know, we, we've got uh, a number of schools here in, in Newark, that's, that's what we spend a lot of our time on. And what we found is that an awful lot of folks don't actually care about all of the sort of policy behind this. Parents just care about whether or not their kid is in a good school. And so hopefully what's in the future is more kids uh, learning in a classroom that has a great teacher. All right. Nope, we're going to call it. Um, I'm sorry, just because we have a, a schedule, but you're free to come up and, and talk to these guys. Um, I hope you do, but I please give them a hand. For- Thank you for joining us. For more information on NJ Spotlight or to offer comments, please go to njspotlight.com. To learn about this specific conference, visit njspotlightoncities.com. Production services were provided by professional podcasts on the web at beingthemedia.com. For everyone here at NJ Spotlight, this is Lee Keo. Thanks for listening.